Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Eagle Ridge Bible Fellowship and the first Sunday of Advent. I'm really excited. Yes, I think everybody should just clap because that's super exciting. <laughs> yeah. Thank you to the many people who helped decorate the stage this week. Uh, there were three teams of people here uh, decorating the foyer and the stage, and we do it because we just rejoice in the coming of the Savior, and, um, and we're just so excited to spend the next month singing and thinking about and worshiping the Savior who came as a human to love us and to care for us. And I can't think of any better way to start than to stand and sing our joy and celebration. So would you stand with us? Thank you. 
said those words even before Jesus came when the angel said I'm gonna do this and she said okay and then she said may the Lord be magnified he has done great things and Lord this morning in our hearts may we hear your voice may we recognize that you have asked us to step out in faith and may we like Mary say yes and may you be glorified May we hear what you have to say this morning in the service. We love you, and we look forward to all that you are going to speak. In the name of Jesus, amen. Why don't you turn and say good morning to someone? Well, good morning to you. My name is Dave Esau, pastor here at, uh, at Eagle Ridge. And welcome also to those online. The one thing you can't do if you're online is what we just did here, right? Get to greet one another and, uh, and connect. Just a couple of announcements that I want to uh, go over. Uh, one, just a reminder that there are, we have a variety of ways to give. And if you, uh, you can uh, just go online and you can see that. But if you're the, the regulars, that's the uh, opportunity for you. And we also have an offering box at the back that you can put uh, in on your way out if you would like to. Next Sunday afternoon, carols and cookies, or as some say, cookies and carols, depending on what your uh, main preference is. Uh, we've had debates about that within our staff meetings, but it's a friendly debate. But it is a, a great opportunity, 2.30 Sunday afternoon. When does it start? 2.30, that's right. I was asking somebody this week. They, I don't know, sometimes the announcements just go by, by you. There. 2.30, Sunday afternoon. It is going to be set up with tables, and there it is going to be enjoyable. 
families especially encourage you kids we're going to have some crafts that you can do as well uh, as we sing and eat and enjoy celebrating this christmas season together the winter shelter well our turn has now been completed for the month of november and i want to say a big thank you to all of you who uh, yeah let's give a hand to all of you who served so diligently. I was just looking for Debbie. Is Debbie? Where's Debbie? There she is. Thank you, Debbie. We have a special thank you for you. If you could just come up briefly. I know you don't like this, but... Uh, and we wanted to say a big thank you to you. Thank you. You're welcome. You know, uh, a ministry always needs someone to champion it, someone who God has really put that on their, on their heart. And a while ago, I did a message, you know, about serving eagerly, right, without grumbling and complaining, not because you have to. And uh, Debbie is one of those, when it comes to working with the homeless, who has just provided such great leadership and inspiration for us, at gathering the people together, working on problems that come up. Yes, problems come up along the way. And yet, uh, getting that through to be able to, to help. And, you know, on, I would say there was 20 to 30 people each night uh, that we were able to help. And so thank you to all of you who did that. Uh, there's also a Cobb's Bread ministry. That is, we get free bread a couple times a month or also other baking as well from Cobb's. And there's still a whole bunch left. So we do that on, we just had it yesterday afternoon for pickup, but there's still a lot left. So please, uh, just at the welcome booth, or welcome center, you just go there after the service and you can, uh, and you can take some home with you. Well, we want to, yes, Ariel, come on up in this in this Advent season, let's continue. Mostly, no. I'll use the other mic. Oh, it's coming. Oh, thank you, Lynn. Today, as I've already said, make, marks the first Sunday of Advent. Many of you are familiar with Advent if you've come to this church for a while or another church that um, celebrates Advent. But for you who are, are not familiar, Advent is a time of expectation and waiting leading up to, up to Christmas and the birth of Jesus. So each Sunday, we read scriptures that talk of the promises fulfilled by Christ some of them given as prophecies to Israel many hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus. And each Sunday we light a candle to remember the coming of the light of the world. This week I was reminded of a line from a Christmas carol, a thrill of hope the weary world rejoices. We live in a weary world which has long pined in its sin and its error we finally knew hope when Jesus was born, lived, died, and rose again. And this Sunday is the Advent Sunday when we remember the hope that the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, brought to the world. So I'd like to invite Betty and Lois to come up, and they are going to be reading the scriptures for Hope Sunday. And after that, I would like the choir to come up and sing.
Good morning, church family. We're happy to be reading the scriptures for the first Sunday of Advent, Hope Sunday. Both the Old and the New Testament have wonderful passages of hope, and they're relevant for us today. Today's readings come from Isaiah and from Paul's letter to the Romans. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, a light that will shine on all who live in the land where death casts a shadow. For a child is born unto us, a son is given us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. These will be his royal titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His ever-expanding, peaceful government will never end. He will rule forever with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Isaiah 9, 2-7. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Romans 15, 13.
love uh, that song, and I had one of those lines stuck in my head this week. O come thou wisdom from on high, and order all things far and ride. And it just feels like our world needs the wisdom of God to order things. It just seems crazy, crazy world. And we can trust and pray that God will come and order all things through his wisdom to us the path of knowledge show and cause us in his ways to go. We are not always wise. We don't always get it right. We don't always do what we're supposed to do, even those of us who follow Jesus. And we need him. We need his faithfulness, his wisdom, his kindness, even when we are unfaithful. So would you stand with me as we continue to sing our worship?
for us, that we, we would live with you, not only one day after we die, but also now in the fullness of your love. And so we continue to pray, Lord, come, come and fill us with your spirit, fill us with your life. Amen.
And uh, kids, you are dismissed to Kids Zone at this time. Well, today we want to uh, begin the series Unwrapping the Names of Jesus. I know uh, I was talking to a parent already this morning. Their kids are already looking forward to the gifts and, and, and unwrapping things. You know, when it comes to unwrapping or, or to knowing people, there's often aspects of a person that we know and that we don't know. Sometimes we go along in life and we think, oh, I really knew that person. And then we realize, oh, there's a whole part of them, an interest or ability that I was just like, wow, I didn't know that about you know, one of our regular sound men, for example, is uh, Doug Ashley. Some of you may have seen him working in the back there. Uh, you may also know, you know, he's a father, he's a husband. But uh, you may not know that he's also a, a ninja. Now, if you uh, look at the, some of the things he does, and if you zoom in on it, it does indeed say ninja on the back, and then the belt says Ashley. It really is, yeah. See? So sometimes it is uh, it's important. So I don't know if he's yet earned the title fully, Ninja Doug, but he has done quite well in his son at competitions. Well, sometimes nicknames, you know, get attached. Uh, Buzz Aldrin, you know, the, the uh, astronaut. Apparently, do you know how he got the, the name Buzz? I had no idea otherwise, so you look it up on Google, right? And, uh, and his, I believe it was his... Yeah, his older si his sister didn't quite know how to say brother. She said buzzer, and, uh, and so it stuck right from young. So you got to be careful, I guess. Uh, Honest Abe, Abe Lincoln, Elvis the King Presley, and then, of course, the name Messiah when it comes to Jesus. The name Jesus, Messiah, or Christ. Messiah is the Hebrew word for it. Christ is the Greek of that. That became attached to Jesus so early on in church history that some people think Christ is actually Jesus' last name. That's actually how the Koran uh, uses Messiah, al-Messiah, as simply a part of Jesus' name. Just so you know, it's not. And yet Jesus Christ became the main way Christians have referred to him for millennia. You ever wondered why that is? You know, because it's stated in a very abbreviated way what and who they understood Jesus to be. The Apostle Paul, for example, uh, wrote, who wrote most of the letters that we have in the New Testament, always, almost always uses the compound name, and more often he speaks of Christ than he actually does of Jesus. So why did the early Christians call Jesus the Messiah, the Christ? Does that title go all the way back to Jesus himself, or is it, is it a title that others gave him that he may not have intended or even wanted? What is the meaning and significance of the title Messiah? Well, hopefully there's some discoveries await us as we unwrap this morning the name 
Messiah. I'm going to take a little bit of a tour through the Bible, beginning with the Old Testament. The, the term Messiah in Hebrew means literally anointed one, someone specially consecrated as God's property, and publicly anointed with divine status and authority. And in the Old Testament, the anointed ones, the messiahs in that sense, were mainly priests and kings. So priests, for example, in Exodus 29, this is what you are to do, consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. And then it gets down to take the anointing oil, that is the special oil, it would have had a, a special distinctive perfume-like smell to it. Okay, and anoint Aaron by putting it on his head. And they just didn't do like a few drops. You know, there's a Psalm 131 talks about like oil running down on Aaron's beard. Well, that's because when they anointed, they did a lot. They just poured, drenched the person in it. And then, of course, King David. Uh, the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one where Samuel is, is going, he's gone to Bethlehem, to Jesse, and he's gone through all of the sons, and all of the ones that he thought, those look like real leadership material. God said, no, and then they get the runt of the family, the little guy. I'm the youngest in the family, so I was like, oh yeah, David. And that's the one. He says, rise, anoint him. And so Samuel takes that horn of oil and he anoints him. And Often what happened then as well is that God's spirit would come upon them and they would be empowered because they were now God's property. His anointed ones specifically designated, empowered by God to carry on his work. Now sometimes God referred to certain people as his anointed, even though they weren't actually anointed, you know, literally. Cyrus, uh, for example, the, the patriarchs, Israel, but it is God's covenant promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, the promise of an eternal house and kingdom and throne that, become, that most deeply shaped Israel's anticipation and expectation of a coming Messiah as an ideal king, appointed, empowered by God to establish his kingdom on earth. And although the prophets did not explicitly use the term Messiah uh, in the Old Testament, as Professor Bruce Walke notes, they contributed greatly to the doctrine of the future king that would rule Israel and the world in the last days. For example, the famous prophecies by Isaiah that we heard earlier. In Isaiah 7, verse 14, for example, uh, he foretold that this coming king would be born of a virgin. She will, he will be called Emmanuel, which means in English, God with us. And in Isaiah 9, verse 6, he says that this special child will have a very long name because there will be so many facets to his greatness that none by themselves can contain it. Wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. The prophet Micah announces both the birth of the humble Messiah at Bethlehem of all places, and his glorious reign. You ever wonder why Bethlehem? You know who else was, came from Bethlehem? King David. King David, that little away place. But Isaiah also, he foresaw also, not just the great glory, but also the great suffering that lay in store. He didn't call him a Messiah, but he calls him a suffering servant. 
And so there are actually a variety of servant songs in Isaiah. A few snippets, uh, Isaiah 42, for example, and uh, in Isaiah 49. But the most famous one, of course, if you're familiar at all with Isaiah, is Isaiah it begins in chapter 52 and then all of chapter 53 of Isaiah. Where there, the Lord speaks about one who will come, who will die on behalf of others. And then he will be raised from the dead to glory. And it was always this great enigma. What is he getting at? And it would finally come to light in Jesus. But it was... Naturally, you know, when they looked over these prophecies, it was the, the victorious and glorious parts that most captured the people's expectations of a Messiah. In the Psalms, for example, the king is represented visually and ideally to the king, making the royal Psalms, you know, pregnant with messianic meaning. And these Old Testament prophecies, promises and prophecies of a coming superhero persisted and intensified during what we call the intertestamental period. That, that time, those 400 years between where your Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins. Sometimes they're called the silent years because, well, there was no official voice from, of the prophets speaking in that time, but they were very, uh, well, there was a lot of wild things that happened in those times. And while expectations varied in that period, uh, N.T. Wright provides a helpful summary of the three great hopes and expectations that emerge in the literature that we have from that time. The, the three things that the Messiah was supposed to do, that is one, he was supposed to win a decisive victory over the pagans. Whoever was in power, and if it was Rome, then it was Rome that he was supposed to defeat. And he was supposed to rebuild or cleanse the temple in some way. In that intertestamental period, Antiochus Epiphanes, that is uh, an emperor who called himself God Manifest, you know, think he had an ego problem, definitely. And he took over the temple, he desecrated it, he offered a pig on the altar. And so they understood this needs to be cleansed and, and God, we need and the Messiah to come and to, to cleanse the temple. And then also third, to bring true God-given justice and peace to the whole world. Shalom. And their desired king and kingdom were mainly rooted in earthly and political in form. They thought of it, well, it's David, you know, son of David. It's supposed to be political like that. But there is a strongly religious tone sounded by groups like the Qumran community. Some of you may not. The Qumran community, if you've ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were scrolls that were found in the 1940s in caves in, uh, in Israel. And they were so well preserved because of the dryness there. And they were discovered. And in those intertestamental, uh, they have scrolls from that period. And the people that went out and lived out in the desert waiting for God to come, they looked for two anointed ones. A priest from Aaron's line and also a king from David's line. Well, when we come to the Gospels, the people clearly expected a Messiah to appear. I'm reminded in, in John chapter 1, Andrew, he goes to his brother Peter and he says, We have found the Messiah, 
okay? And with John the Baptist, people were wondering, are you the Messiah? Because they recognized that God's Spirit was on him. And he said, no, I am not the Messiah. But he, he was one who was preparing the way. And they also, we also know he was supposed to be a son of David. Jesus asked the crowd, the Pharisees around, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And with one voice, they answer, the son of David. So we get these expectations. And remember when the Magi come, and they're looking for the one to be born king of the Jews. And, and where, where are we to find him? And, and uh, Herod asks his you know, specialists, his religious scholars, and they all agree he's going to be born in Bethlehem, okay, where David was. And the stir caused by the Magi's arrival and search for the one who had been born king of the Jews is clear evidence of how widespread this expectation for a messianic king, a hero, was. A mighty leader who would overthrow the Romans is precisely what they hoped, what they wanted in a Messiah. In, in John chapter 6, verse 15, there's one occasion where Jesus, knowing that they... They are caught up. They have seen him, uh, you know, feed 5,000 with just a few loaves and fish. And they are thinking, this has got to be the one who can do greater things than this. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, he withdraws away by himself. Because they have a very clear idea of what they want. They wanted a king to deliver them from Rome, not one to deliver them from their own evil and sin. Which explains, I think, why Jesus, in the Gospels, he seems to avoid the title Messiah in any and every public setting and situation. Prior, that is, when he is finally on trial before the Roman governor Pilate. Jesus has this frequent command, often when he's, he's just done a miracle, and he says, especially in the Gospel of Mark, don't tell anyone about this. Or he commands the demons who know who he is, he commands them to be silent. And I think it's best explained by Jesus' awareness that he is not the kind of Messiah that they are popularly expecting. He has been shaped not just by a part of the biblical narrative, but by the all of the biblical narrative, including those suffering servant parts. And we see in the decisive moments in the, in the Gospels, for example, uh, turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. The disciples, they have seen and heard everything that Jesus has been doing. Jesus takes his disciples aside, and it's, it's quiz pop quiz time. And he asked them two key questions. The first question is an observation question. Okay, guys, who do people say that I am? Well, the disciples, they've been observant. They, they know that some people say John the Baptist, because John the Baptist, if you remember, had been killed. And Herod thought, John the Baptist has been raised to the, from the dead in Jesus. Others say Elijah, that is the greatest prophet in the Old Testament who was supposed to come before the great day of the Lord. And still others, one of the prophets. Well, uh, in the, if you've ever seen the, the Alpha course, it's an introduction to the Christ, Christian faith. Some of it was filmed in Vancouver and they took the camera and they asked some of the people in, in our area, you know, who do you think Jesus is? 
And here's a, a few samples. Who is Jesus? To be honest with you, I don't know. I'm not super religious or anything, so, I mean, he, I guess he's a savior or something. <laughs> Personally, I think that Jesus was probably a really cool dude who lived a long time ago and gave great advice to people, and it snowballed from there. I think those are actually pretty common. You know, it kind of snowballed. There was some... But many in that day, seeing and hearing even some of the evidence themselves, they knew that Jesus was great. The only question, was he the greatest of all time? Was he really the one who would embody all of those hopes and dreams? Well, the second question Jesus asked his disciples took the question from his identity out of the theoretical, you know, just an observation question, to the personal and practical. But what about you? Yeah, he said. Who do you say that I am? Peter, often the spokesman for the group, he says, you are a Messiah. No, you are the Messiah. Right answer. And then he tells them to keep quiet. <laughs> Why not go public? Because the assumptions and expectations that people filled the title with were different than what Jesus did. Which is why, immediately following Peter's confession, what does Jesus do? He begins to teach them that the Son of Man, that is his preferred title that Jesus himself most often used because it was generic enough that he could fill it with his own meaning. There are also some, some others, but that's mainly. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law. That is, anybody who's anybody in Judaism, uh, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And it says... He spoke very plainly about this. And Peter's response? Ah! No, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. At which point Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and rebuked Peter saying, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. The idea that they have of the Messiah is exactly the one that Satan had tried to tempt Jesus with immediately following his baptism when he had gone out into the wilderness. Throw yourself off the temple. Use your miraculous powers to be a big deal. And you can avoid this path of suffering and death. It's just that, you know, it's not going to accomplish everything the God's way. And Jesus had refused that because he knew that the Messiah must also be the suffering servant, the one who must usher in God's kingdom, God's way, or else we would just have the same problem over and over and over again. You see, Jesus had believed all along, certainly from his baptism and temptation, that it was his vocation, his calling to be Israel's Messiah. And only before Pilate, when everything looked 
absolutely like nothing the Messiah anyone expected, okay? When he's absolutely powerless, beaten, bleeding, he's got a crown of thorns, and it's like, are you the one? I am. Only then did Jesus' veiled claim come out in the open, and then mostly he had done it in symbolic actions. There's a reason. Remember that expectation that the Messiah would cleanse the temple? What does Jesus do when he comes to Jerusalem? He cleanses the temple, and what do they want to do after that? They want to put him to death. By what authority are you doing this? And what else does he do? The great symbolic action, the Last Supper. He takes that great, uh, the Exodus event, and he says, that was all pointing to me, and actually I'm going to be the one who is bringing about the great Exodus his messiahship involved not a throne, but a cross. Not glory, but humility. Not reigning, but dying, at least first. And as Israel's messiah, Jesus would do for Israel what she could not do for herself. Remember, Israel had been called to be the salt, the light of the world. And he would fulfill Israel's call to be God's servant, the light of the world. But how would he do it? While messianic expectations were not all uniform, there was widespread agreement, as we saw, on at least two key items. He was supposed to cleanse or rebuild the temple and fight Israel's great battle. And how did Jesus see his own calling and relationships to these two fundamental tasks? He would not rebuild the temple in a physical sense, but he himself, he was the very center of God's presence. The one in whom and through whom forgiveness became a reality. That was what the great temple was, to worship God, but also as a place to find forgiveness and cleansing. And regularly throughout his ministry, Jesus had acted as if he was the temple. When he said to people, your sins are forgiven, the Pharisees were outraged because you cannot do that. We know where that can be done and who can do it. But you have got to go do that in a temple with a sacrifice. Like, they would have said, who do you think you are? God himself? Yeah. He had bypassed that system. And he went to his death as the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice. In Mark chapter, eight, uh, chapter 10, verse 45, he said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Language out of Isaiah, the suffering servant. He would fight the ultimate messianic battle against the ultimate evil one, not by mirroring evil, not by using the same tactics as the evil one. That is a myth. Uh, one writer, Walter Wink, calls it the myth of redemptive violence, that we can use violence to overcome violence, that we can use violence to establish peace. How's that working for us? So he instead, he, he doesn't mirror evil, but he exposes it for all the world to see. I mean, the truly righteous, sinless one, and he gets put to death for a death reserve for the worst of all criminals. And then, so how does he respond? He exposes this injustice, and then he blasts them to oblivion. No, he doesn't. 
No, this Messiah deals with evil by taking upon himself the consequences of human sin and rebellion and injustice against the only truly good, sinless, and just one that has ever walked this earth. And it was the means by which he would achieve the ultimate victory of God. And having been known for his remarkable compassion all of his life and ministry, Jesus' last great act was to draw and to give himself for others, ultimately. This is the reason why the church so regularly and with such awe referred to him as the Christ. That's why the label stuck. That is why they call him Jesus the Christ. Now we should note that if Jesus' body had stayed in the tomb, there is no reason why anyone would have taken any of his claims to be Messiah seriously or understand his death to have the significance and meaning that he gave it, especially that he gave it at the Last Supper. Crucified messiahs, as everybody knew, were failed messiahs. There are failed messiahs before Jesus' time and after Jesus' time. Big following, when the messiah ended up dying, they're like, mm, wrong one, not the one. You, you get a glimpse of this in, the, in Luke 24. Jesus has been resurrected, but they don't yet know it. There's these two disciples. They're walking on the road to Emmaus. And, they, and one of them says, we had, or they say, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Can't, can't be, we, but we were sure. But without the resurrection, Jesus would have been just a fool. And they would have been fools to think he was the Messiah. But what happened at Easter validated and still validates Jesus' interpretation of his own death and victory over evil as the Messiah, as the Christ. And so the, the key question comes back to the one that Jesus asked those disciples long ago. Who do you say that I am? Not who do others say that I am. No, but who do you say that I am? Because this is incredibly, this is the most important, the answer is the most important one to any question ever. Because if Jesus was the Messiah, God's chosen one, then our only hope is to bet it all on him. It really is. And if we have done that in our lives, but we keep hoping that he'll be a different kind of Messiah, one that will do the kinds of things that we want, how did that work? That didn't work. Then we need to follow his way, the way of Jesus the Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, your most famous title, the Christ, it is so well-deserved. We thank you that you came not as the Messiah that it, everyone hoped you would be, but as the one we all needed you to be. 
We thank you that when you exposed the injustice of the world, you did not condemn the whole world to destruction. But you took upon yourself all of the consequences of sin that we deserve. And you offered us forgiveness. You offered us a whole new start and an opportunity to even now already begin experiencing what life in your kingdom is like. Lord, this day we want to come to you anew in worship and in awe, declaring anew our allegiance to you as the true king, as the true Messiah. Amen.